Hello. 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 And welcome to the Pioneers Post podcast. Social enterprise stories and conversations from across the world. Welcome to Fit for the Future, a Pioneers Post podcast created and co-hosted with our partners at Buzzacott Accountants. In this series, we talk to some of the stars of social enterprise and mission-driven businesses and explore what it means to build a healthy, resilient, sustainable organization that's able to do good and well at the same time. My name is Anna Patton. I'm the managing editor at Pioneers Post, and I'm here with Matthew Katz, who is a partner and head of the corporate finance team at Buzzacott Accountancy Firm. Hi, Anna. We've also got Mark Sims, who is the chief executive of P3 Charity. Good afternoon. And we have Isabel Irani, who is co-founder of Sumerian Partners and Impact Investor. Hi, Anna. So today we're going to talk about raising finance. Social enterprises and charities who want to grow and to increase their impact usually need to raise some kind of finance. And there are a number of options open to them, but one that's particularly relevant is social investment. So that's repayable finance, could be in the form of debt or equity or a blended grant and loan, which is used to help an organization to have a positive impact. But the social investment world is not that easy to navigate, and social enterprises tell us that it can be confusing and off-putting. Thanks, Anna, and thanks for having me along to co-host with you. I think we've got two great guests today um, who both got extensive experience of, sort of the investor and the investee side of social investment with both large and small organizations. As you've said, the social investment space is not an easy world to navigate. It's particularly hard to come across the really good advice in the space, and I suppose that's one of the things that myself and my team at Buzz got really keen to try and bring to it because it's sort of an underserved market and to, to help educate and, and give confidence to the social enterprises to embark on the fundraising or give them guidance when it's not right for them. So let's start with Mark. So Mark Sims is the CEO of P3 Charity based in Derbyshire. P3 supports vulnerable people with housing and many other support services. It was created way back in 1972 and it's grown massively since then. I believe you supported 30,000 people in the last year. Yeah, that's right. And you've also, despite everything that's been going on last year, raised £14 million last year alone to buy 300 properties for people living in temporary accommodation. Can you give us a brief idea of sort of how P3's growth happened? I mean, it's obviously happened over, over a long period, but was there kind of a particular turning point for P3's growth? What kind of finance kind of really made the difference for P3? Yeah, I mean, it kind of not happened overnight, obviously. Um, In 2002, we were providing a single uh, hostel in uh, Wolverhampton, and it was spending more money than it was um, getting in and wouldn't have been around for long. And a new management team was brought in. I was part of that management team, along with a chap called Martin Kinsella, who was the first chief exec. And um, we pretty much focused on listening to what the people we work alongside have got to say about what good looks like. So we weren't focused on growth. We were focused on delivering great services to people who had often been let down by other bits of service. And um, when you're focusing on that, actually, good things tend to generally happen because most sensible people think that's a good thing if you're actually stopping people from becoming homeless in the first place and actually helping people who are homeless um, get somewhere to live and have their own front door. Most people think that's a good thing. It's not a difficult story to tell. And um, and then we ended up taking on another hostel and a couple of houses and, and so on. And, and for the first five years, I would say... It was um, quite rapid growth. We went from about 400,000 turnover to about 4 million 
but in kind of infrastructure terms, it was a lot better than that because we had an HR manager and a and a proper finance team because we didn't have a finance team. I think if we'd have gone to somebody in 2002 and said, would you like to invest in us, they'd have laughed us out the room, really. And then we started to hear about stuff like future builders. There was conversations around future builders were starting to happen and potentially what that could bring. Future Builders was an organisation or a funding stream set up by government to use, um, I think it was dormant assets and, and money, you know, latent money in bank accounts to deliver good through a range of finance methods, loans and grants and stuff. And we had a combination of all of those things uh, because our ambition at that time was great. We were seeing lots of people that we were working with who couldn't or wouldn't be housed by mainstream housing associations and councils because they've got really complex and multiple needs. So we started off relatively small by buying, I think it was our first property was six properties dotted around Derbyshire and it and it kind of went on from there and then we bought another six and another six till we ended up having about 30 properties that we owned through social finance. Right. And you've also taken on social impact bonds as well, haven't you? Yeah, that was kind of later on when uh, social impact bonds... I mean, I, I think all of these things are great and we looked at them as enablers, not as something to do in its own right. So the real thing about social impact bonds was that there was an opportunity to try something called housing first, which was a new way of thinking about supporting people, which is about get them somewhere to live and then build services around that rather than have to go through lots of different doors before you finally end up with your own front door. And we were excited by that. But one of the criteria was to look at social finance as a route to fund it as a social impact bond. And um, we started off looking at one in Gloucestershire and then through a whole a set of odd circumstances we ended up bidding and winning for two including one in the east midlands and um, that was our real first venture into social impact bonds Mm. and we went into that with some trepidation but also with some good lessons under our belt that is usually the first offer you get is not the best offer you're going to get right and for charities and people like us who if you like aren't traditional in this market or certainly weren't then Actually, having those robust conversations with potential investors was an odd thing to do because we're mostly used to negotiating with commissioners who want to give us money. So, yeah, that was social impact bonds. And then we've done five of those. And then more recently, we've started to raise capital for more property. And particularly during the pandemic, we were supporting a thousand people extra each week in hotels and um, various other settings up and down the country. The initiative was called Everyone In and we wanted to make sure that everyone in was everyone in for good by having somewhere for people to live. So so we embarked on a a mission to raise more finance because obviously we didn't have the money in the bank to do it, to buy property up and down the country. So, So raising finance to grow not as an end in itself but growth to provide better services um, is one thing, but also kind of taking those opportunities to grow when that door opens. Yeah, I mean, the truth is, for us, it's not about growth. It's about providing 300 homes for people to live in. And, And the thing about us is all of these deals have been guided by our mission and purpose and we've not never moved away from that to chase the money mm. and that is something that i think people sometimes can be really tempted to do right yeah interesting Brilliant. 
And to bring Isabel into the conversation, Isabel, you're the co-founder of Sumerian Partners, an impact investor. So, so you've actually got the money to invest into social enterprises. But, but I think you're, you, you're tackling it in a slightly different manner because you also provide structure, support, advice, skills in advance of them taking on the money. Is, is that how you guys work, Isabel? Yes, Matt, that is correct. And to echo a point that Mark said in the beginning of P3, social enterprises or charities, they're, they're trying to solve complex development challenges, and they're going to be experts in their field, whether it's mental health, housing, or financial exclusion, et cetera. And they care about what good looks like, but it doesn't mean that they're experts in growing an organization. Um, and that, what I mean by that is they don't necessarily have the skill sets, the soft skill sets that are needed to, to grow a business or to capacity build. And that could include finance skills, you know, forecasted financials, management accounts, putting together a strategy, pivoting a strategy, governance, risk, human resources, all these skills that you need to build an organization. So at Sumerian, we focus on impact first. And what we mean by this is that we'll assess the impact of any initiative first, and then the strength of the management team. And if we think that those two elements are in place, we then work with them extensively over several months to help them focus on their strategy and financials. Um, so we were providing a lot of this support before we're even providing any type of financial, financial investment. If we strictly focused on the financials, the overwhelming majorities of the social enterprises and charities would be excluded because most of them don't even have that in place. Yeah. So we would say it's it's a more far more inclusive way of working, but most importantly, it also helps us mitigate risk once we provide the repayable finance to these organizations. And Isabel, do you usually find it's on the, the financial team side that there is the biggest weakness in, in the, the social enterprises you're talking to and looking to help? Not necessarily. The two areas that we, well, three areas, I should say. In most cases, a govern, governance structure will not be in place, but that's okay. And then secondly, the, the finance organization, and that's probably because they don't have the reserves to get a full-time FD, and they probably only have a bookkeeper in place. Um, so helping them build that discipline in place and understanding what the future will look like. But that's heavily integrated to helping the, the management team interrogate the strategy, right? So by working with the, the team, the management team behind the social enterprise or behind the, the charity, we will work through what a three-year strategy looks like. They will always have a view on that, what that is. And then we will work with them to develop the financial forecast around that. Cool. And one, one final question before we move the conversation on. When, when you talk about team, you, is, is one, one visionary leader in the enterprise good enough? Or does it need a team of people to be the right organization for you to st start thinking about backing? A very good question. It, in many cases, it's just one individual. In some cases, it's two. In some cases, it's, it's, a, it's a larger team. But I, the majority would probably be, be one to two. So kind of following on from that question, and you've, you've discussed it a little bit, Isabel, but just to step back a bit for a moment and say to someone who has never taken on social investment before, what, what would you tell them about, you know, how the process works? Like, what, what is it actually like? How, how stressful is it? You know, how much extra work does it involve? Who, who needs to be involved? It's an interesting one. I go back to my first point about not raising finance for raising finance's sake. And I think some people 
have so little understanding about social finance. The word social gets in the way and people somehow think that someone's giving them money for something, that they're not really that bothered if they don't get the money back. And certainly when we first started looking at it, we were thinking, what is this social finance? Is it like a grant? And it's not until you do a bit of research around that that you think, yeah, that's what we want to do. And it's really, for us, is about the right time to look at, start looking to raise investment is when you need to raise investment for something you want to do, not just about growth, because that might be the right thing for some organisations. They want to grow or sell more of a product or whatever. But it's not looking at raising finance as a solution to fix a structural problem or a structural problem with your finances. Right. Because that's sometimes what we get is, you know, the usual next year, we've got more money going out than we've got coming in. We were thinking of raising finance. You said, oh, is it a short term problem? And said, oh, no, we've just got not enough money coming in. So, it so is, is this that, is uh, this because you often get people calling you sort of for for advice? Is this kind of one of the common questions that you? Yeah, and and at just about every conference you go to about social finance, there's usually a couple of people in the room are always taken aback by the fact that people will only lend you money if you could, could pay it back, or they'll only mm. invest in you if you've got a reasonable chance of paying it back, or take a risk with you, and you might have to pay them a bit more money. Right, and that's not to say people are silly or or daft, but it is just there's a mis a mystery about the word social finance still. I think what I would add to that is social investment. I don't know why this is the case, but most people perceive social investment as either a loan or equity. And that's not necessarily the case. And there's a huge learning process as part of that. And we would say, not dissimilar from, from what Mark says, is, is in the most of our cases, the social enterprise or charity, they're growing. Their mindset is to be sustainable or reduce dependence on subsidies. So that mindset is always there. And they recognize they have to build capacity in order to meet their current demands. So in other words, there's some level of a gap to get from A to B. They don't know how to get there. And why we stress in providing so much pre-investment support is to build a trust and partnership with the organization as part of that process. Now, if that takes 12 months, it takes 12 months. So it's always at the pace that suits the organization. By building that trusted partnership, it enables one to mitigate future risks. If I could just jump in and sort of, you know, taking the point that uh, both Isabel and Mark have made about you know, finance and looking at it from a long-term strategy perspective, raising finance, I, and one of the things that crossed my mind in, in that is, is do you need to be sustainable before you raise the finance as, as a social enterprise, or do you need the finance to get to that sustainable level? As my old boss used to say, the answer is both yes and no. <laughs> always, a, always a good answer, Mark. A wise boss, obviously. Yeah, I think it's down to your individual situation, I suspect, in each organisation. And then it also comes down to how much, how much of a risk you can take with that. So understanding your market and where that's going. And if you've got an investor who's confident that you are going to achieve sustainability and viability, that's probably a good thing. But thinking that social finance is the answer to sustainability and viability by bridging, you know, 
or by taking you into an uncertain future is absolutely not the right way to go, I would say. And I think most investors would agree with that. Isabel, have you got a view on that as part of your pre-work with the enterprises to try and make sure that they are sustainable? Completely agree. So we are always working with the management team to understand the business model to ensure that they can take on repayable finance. The last thing you want is an organization to take on repayable finance, that they're using all their reserves to pay that back because then they're stuck in a hamster wheel. They're never building reserves for the organization to grow and they'll always have that level of dependency. So the key is how do you find the level of affordability so that the organization can pay a portion of the instrument back, but also start building a level reserves. The other thing, Matt, that I wanted to add was we would say, you know, for fit for the future, it's not just about finance. You have to have the skills yeah. support. Some organizations will have the benefit of very strong governance, but the overwhelming majority of small to medium-sized charities or social enterprises do not have that governance in place. So it's not just about the, the financial aspect. Hello, I'm Tim West, founding editor of Pioneers Post, and I'm interrupting today's podcast for 30 seconds to let you know that you can get access to thousands more resources, interviews and stories on pioneerspost.com as a subscriber. Subscribing is a really important way that you can support us. As a social enterprise ourselves, we rely on the income from subscriptions so we can produce more stories that help our growing global community of purpose-driven social entrepreneurs and impact investors to do good business better. So please take a moment to find out more at pioneerspost.com slash subscribe. And now back to the podcast. If an organisation is you know, ready to take on social investment, is sort of at the right stage of development, is doing it for the right reasons and everything, what, what would you then sort of advise them to kind of be aware of, you know, how much, how much kind of time and additional work or resource is it going to take? How much time does it take to, to find the right social investment? Who in their team needs to be involved? Well, I'll go first and say the answer to that about how much time will it take, who needs to be involved, what's involved, is as unique as the organisation seeking the investment. So if you're an organisation of three and it's you and two delivery staff, then it's probably going to be you and a couple of people off your board start to look around for social investment. And it could take a lot of time. It could take little time if you found somebody uh, like Isabel who's going to look at that stuff and work with you on it and answer some of your unanswered questions about your long-term strategy and your structure and so on. And I'll let Isabel talk about that but if you're not investment ready but you've got a keen investor who thinks they can help you get investment ready it might take a long time and that might be a year or two years but Isabel's more of an expert in in this stuff than I am for me it took a lot of my finance director's time and a lot of my chief operating officer's time and a lot of board time but actually the investment was proportionate to that time right but I suppose that's also partly why it's not the perfect solution for like filling an urgent gap as you were saying earlier it's not about sort of plugging a hole but about more of a long term I'd agree 
I would say, to Mark's point, it really depends on how investment ready the organization is in the majority of the cases. So I would say 85%, there is no governance in place or really skeletal, you know, executive only on governance. So on average, it's going to take six to eight months. But I can't stress enough that that the in in our case, the pre-investment skills support that we provide has to be beneficial to the charity and social enterprise. They have to view this as useful. It's, it, we, we are not sitting and, and building their strategy or building their financial forecast. We're embedding that skill set within the organization. In other words, even if they say, actually, we don't want to take money from Sumerian, that skill set's going to be embed in internally, which is why we work at their pace. Do you understand why we're looking at pricing in this way? Because right now you may not be covering, you're covering all your direct costs, but you're not necessarily covering all your indirect costs. Does that make sense? Can your beneficiary afford that type of pricing? If not, maybe we need to consider a cross-subsidy model. And and it's a very iterative process until we're ready to say, by the way, now that we've all agreed on your strategy and we've interrogated it, and we understand the risks, this is how much money we think you should raise. Because normally they don't know that answer. Oh, and based on your business model and the way we see the cash flows of the next few years, this is the right form of patient, flexible finance you need because we don't work on a one-size-fits-all for the organization. So when I say, yes, it is a time-consuming process, but it's something that the organization gains quite significantly during that process. Alternatively, they can stop working with us. It's not useful for them. Um, but fortunately, to date, that hasn't been the case. <laughs> and just to, to clarify, when you say many of them come and they don't have any governance in place, what do you mean exactly by that? They, they won't have a board in place. Right. You know, there'll be one director, maybe the founders on the board, but it's it's not operating like true governance. And that's something that you see as essential. No, when I say we are in essence providing that support, when we start, when I say weaning off the skills support, it's usually at an inflection point when they're ready to start bringing external directors onto their board. So we will help them as part of that to start developing a governance structure. And at that point, this is now post-investment, our support will start weaning off. Why? Because they have a series of experts that they trust that they've built on their board and they understand the role of governance. Picking up on what you've just been saying there, Isabel, and, and you're able to have a good insight into the social enterprises before you, you invest your money. The quid pro quo for the social enterprise, it's about taking the right money, not just any money. Any, any advice what, what the social enterprises should be looking for in any monies that they may be taking? Yeah, what's the cost? I, I often hear, certainly in the first part of our journey, when people were telling us it might be 11% on repayable finance for a building, and I thought was that that was extraordinary, being as a base rate the lowest it's ever been in the country. But to ask those questions, really, and to think, would you do it if it was your money? You know, if you've got to pay it back out of your money, that's a reasonably good test of whether it's good value if you've got nothing else to measure it against. But 
the thing I would do is advise people to talk to colleagues and whatever in the sector about where they are and maybe reaching out to people who've got experience, if they, who've had experience in social finance before and just use that as a sounding board to kind of work out if they've got a good deal because you only know what you only know. And you could be taking something that you think, actually, this is the best thing since sliced bread. And then when you talk to someone else, they're saying, oh, no, we're paying 11, we're paying 6. It might be for a whole different lots of reasons. That's certainly what we did early doors. And we worked out very quickly who, who we could work with, who was all that they seemed. That's a really, really valid point, Mark, because it, you know, the price of the money is part of it, though, because it can work both ways. But one of my concerns for those taking on investment is sort of the behaviours behind the money. And I suppose it is about what you guys do is obviously you're investing a lot of time up front. And therefore, to me, that's a pretty good indication of Sumerian's behaviours. Any thoughts about you know, any, any guidance for anyone out there who is right now maybe you know, choosing between various investors? Uh, the first thing I'd say is by nature of what these organizations are trying to solve, which is incredibly commendable, they will always be low and slow growth. In other words, if they were growing super fast, they can access commercial funding, right? So so the key then is for these organizations, knowing that they're going to grow low and slow, by the way, they'll have setbacks and pivot points, which is nature, which is natural for any organization. What is their affordability, right? Can they, and back to Mark's point, can they afford to take on 11%, which, which was the number that, that Mark referenced. Do, do they have the ability to pay back an instrument, but also reinvest into their, or, into their own organization, right? And I think when they're, when they're looking to take on social investment from a provider, it's really important that whoever the intermediary is, Explain why does that instrument make sense? Is that the only option? When do you pay? How do you pay? Regular fixed payments. Is it based on your cash flows? Is it variable? Does it match your growth? Why did they choose that instrument? Is all the cash that you're generating paying back this instrument or can you reinvest back into your organization? What happens if you're having a difficult income trading year? What happens in a recession? I mean, these are all key questions that any leader of an organization should be cognizant of when taking on, taking on finance. But I would also say, do you have a trusted relationship with this organization? Do they understand your organization when things go wrong? What happens? Have you referenced them for feedback? Ask other social entrepreneurs who've taken on finance for them. Do they provide more than just money? So there's a whole host of questions that are really important to do that any executive from a charity or social enterprise should be considering. Yeah, Isabel, the, the list of things given there, though, so, so might, might fill any executive in a, in a charity or anything with the fear that there's an awful lot to go wrong in taking on board social investment. No, I don't. If, if someone understands your risks, your business model, and has structured the right form of finance, and you're aligned in terms of intention, I, I would disagree with that. Okay. But that's why we, we say it's a partnership. It's a partnership and it should be an equal partnership. Yeah. There's there's stuff about that though, which is um 
there's equal and then there's equal. I know people who, medium-sized organisations or even larger ones, where the the investors have said, oh, we want places on the board, we want right of veto over, you know, contracts that you're taking on and all the rest of it. And actually, that's that's something else. I think that feels quite different. And then you really do need to sit back and think, actually, is this the right deal for us? Is surrendering control of the organisation something we need to do to take on social finance? And that, to me, suggests that you might have the wrong investor or you might be looking for the wrong amount of money or the wrong money or money for the wrong reasons. Because if you're that much of a risk, you've got to take people on your board to take control of the organisation in the event of then, you know, are you willing to put all that at risk? They're really big questions. I know people who've done it and live to regret it. I I 100% agree with that. If people are going to take, investors are going to take some level of control, it needs to be mutually agreed. It needs to be for reasons that make sense, never for operational. If you don't trust your management team to make operational decisions, you shouldn't be supporting them. Agreed. How how important is it to to find a social investor that has, you know, a real understanding of your sector and maybe experience themselves of running a social business? I'd rather they be a good social investor. What what do you mean by that? They don't necessarily need to know about about housing or about uh... No, because we do. Okay. We know about that. And I'd rather them be a good a good investor and be willing to listen to our challenge and maybe then they can take their own advice about whether our proposals are good and sound and our assumptions work, you know, it all works. But the the thing is, if you're going to someone who knows all about housing, then you're starting, as Isabel says, you will always agree on a different operating model because nobody does it all the same for the same people all the time. And I think that that's a... That's certainly a challenge. That's inviting someone else to come in and run your business and run your enterprise and tell you how to do it. What we want is an investor who believes what we're going to do and thinks we're a, you know, a safe pair of hands and will work with us through it and hopefully invest in us again at some point should we need it because we're good at what we do. If we've got to rely on other people to tell us we're good at what we do, we're talking to the wrong people, I think. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's exactly the same philosophy at Sumerian. The only difference is we will only hire people who have built organizations, worked and grown small organizations, agnostic to sector, because we always believe the management team will be the expert in housing, as as Mark has just said, um, where we will provide the advice on governance. But also when it comes to building a strategy or management accounts, because we've lived and breathed it, we know what's practical versus someone just putting a spreadsheet and saying, well, you know, you should grow by 100%. That's where we have the empathy of other entrepreneurs who are looking to capacity build and build organizations. So Mark, for you, if you came across a social investor who who had run and set up and grown a social business themselves, would that make you more likely to, to work with them? No, uh, really, the only thing I'm interested in, frankly, is how ethical they are and what the product is. And they should really be only interested in me, how ethical I am and how how investable we are. And I, I think the rest of it is nice to have, but also creates some myth around the sector that these things are warm and cuddly. Knowing from my other 
if you like, some of the other stuff that I've been exposed to about how funds are raised and what superior, you know, what, what head investors are looking for and all the rest of it. I know the pressure on these funds and what they are required to deliver and, uh, and so on and so forth. So it can create a false impression, actually, that it's all kind of at people's individual discretion and control and that the person you're talking to has got absolute control over the money that they're investing in you and so on. And often you're just talking to a, an investment manager who's going to an investment committee. It's not the person who's running it, usually, that's setting those deals up. It's the investment manager, the investment committee, and the investors into those uh, people who are deploying the funds. And so when you can start to see behind that, you start to realise how much more important the things that Isabel talks about are good governance, good management of risk, understanding your pricing understanding how cash comes into your business, understanding how you manage your risk your, and, and so on. Those things, if you can talk to somebody in that language and they can help you understand those things, that's what's going to get you through an investment committee, not a nice story from um, someone who's who's leading an organisation that's done it before. You're on the board of Big Issue Invest. How how has that changed your views, if at all? Um, what, what's it like sort of sitting on the other side of things? Well, it, it's been a revelation, frankly. I'm surrounded by people, thankfully, who are a lot brighter and a lot cleverer at social investment than I am. And so I'm learning a lot at every meeting that I go to. And it's been a, interesting, particularly seeing how they raise funds to deploy them, because Big Issue Invest is an ethical investor. They're mad keen to do... Um, to do stuff that changes people's lives for good and that kind of stuff. But actually generating a pot of money that's affordable, that manages all of those risks, you know, they've just got the same problems that we have when we're trying to raise investment. They're trying to raise investment for the people who are trying to raise investment. So they're talking to uh, other people and, and creating funds. So the the issues are all, I think, broadly the same. The audiences are just different, I think. It's interesting seeing the the reasons why some or hearing why some deals go through and some deals don't go through. Lots of it is to do with well, lots of nervousness is really not really about what organisations are doing. It's really about governance and structure and long term viability. Another thought that I've been having whilst listening has been about how easy it really is to raise social investment when there isn't asset backing or property backing you know, within the organisation. Isabel, Mark, have you got a view on that? Our only experience of it has been when we've delivered social impact bonds. And um, to do that, we created um, JVs with other not-for-profit organisations, other charities in both situations. And neither of those had got asset or revenue they've got no reserves no assets and actually it was a risk-free to the principal to us um, because they, the investors have got no recourse to us should it go horribly wrong which thankfully it didn't and um, that was through a social impact um, one of the early social impact ones and that worked really well because actually what investors did was a lot of due diligence about our performance and ability to deliver on that because we were raising, they were, these were multi-million pound social investment bonds and we were raising capital, well, we were raising uh, the revenue. The thing, though, we had a really good intermediary who was helping us and helped us to structure our ask and build a, a portfolio. And we also ran some social investment tax relief along the side of it. So we kind of tried to cover 
all bases and we had a really really good um intermediary in triodos who who helped us navigate that and put together a prospectus isabel any comments on on this area i believe a big majority of the finance is based on asset backed in the social investment sector um mark touched on a very um crucial point on on the SIB that they structured. In essence, the intermediary was looking at P3's track record in delivering impact. So at, at Sumerian, that's exactly what we do. We, we, do, we are never looking for assets. In fact, all our, our um, finance is um, acts like equity in all cases. So it matches the cash flows of the organization's business model. We never need collateral, but what we care about um, very similar to what Mark said, is we care about the track record or impact that has been delivered historically by the organization. That that is that is one of the key points in our initial criteria, and then we'll structure um, the patient and flexible finance around that. But but we do not require any collateral. I think we'll just finish with one last sort of very brief question. One final top tip for a charity or social enterprise who is considering social investment. I I would only say for any charity or social enterprise that's taking on social investment, please reference other um, entrepreneurs, management teams, and find out whether or not they were good intermediaries to work with. The best references are from your peers. So I, I, I cannot reinforce. Don't speak to me. Speak to the portfolio companies we backed and ask what they think of us. Those, that's the best way to see whether or not you're working with the right partner. Mine's exactly the same as Isabel's. Talk to, talk to people who've been through it because they'll save you going through it. Talk to people who've already done it and learn from their mistakes. Most of us are delighted to share our mistakes. Nice, nice tip. And a very simple one, actually, isn't it? Thank you so much to our guests, Mark Sims from P3 Charity and Isabel Irani from Sumerian Partners. Thank you. Thank you. And to my co-host, Matt Katz. Thanks, Anna. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to this Pioneers Post podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can find more stories and resources for social enterprises and impact investors on pioneerspost.com. And if you'd like to support us as a social enterprise ourselves and get access to loads more premium content, you can subscribe from just £3 a month.